Hello, and welcome to Life Stories, a podcast where I interview memoir writers about their lives and the art of writing memoir. I'm Ron Hogan, and my guest today is Molly Weisenberg. Her new book is Delancey. It's published by Simon & Schuster. And this is the second time that we have met to discuss a memoir of yours. Yeah, thanks for talking with me again. Absolutely. So let's introduce that to listeners by talking a little bit about that first memoir. So my first book was called A Homemade Life. And it was the story of growing up in a food-loving family in Oklahoma City, Oklahoma, and losing my dad when I was in my early 20s, and sort of the the journey, for lack of a less cheesy word, that that put me on toward figuring out what I wanted to do with my life. And when we met when you were touring to promote that book, the events that you write about in Delancey were already starting to happen. I remember you, you telling me that you were about to open up a pizza restaurant in yeah, Seattle. And- yeah, yeah. When I finished writing A Homemade Life, my husband had like just hatched the idea to open this restaurant, and I really didn't believe that it was going to happen. But by the time the book was coming out, so that would have been you know spring of 2009, we were well into construction, thoroughly overwhelmed by it, and uh, we wound up opening in August of 2009. Let's circle back to what you just said there about how when your husband first came up with the idea, you weren't entirely convinced it was going to happen. And that's because, as you write about, he had a number of ideas that didn't quite get off the ground about what he was going to be doing. Yeah, my husband is a a wonderful dreamer and he's he's very ambitious he's really thoughtful he's really motivated and really creative and even though we were married there were still a lot of things that I didn't know about him you know I had only known him for a little over two years when he came up with the idea to open this restaurant and to me you know I kind of couldn't tell the difference between this crazy idea out of left field to open a restaurant and these other kind of plans that he had had that he had kind of um, left by the wayside like he wanted to build a violin for a while he um, he wanted to build a boat. And he's trained as a musician. So, you know, I think when I married him, I thought I'm marrying a, a musician, maybe a future professor of music. Um, I had no idea that two years later I was going to be married to a chef. And this was something that because you had already gone through this path of bailing from graduate school mm-hmm. to pursue something that meant a lot more to you, you recognized that in what he was going through at the time, because he was also in graduate school and looking for anything to do other than pursue that degree to the end. Yeah, yeah. When we met, I had just left my PhD program. I was living in Seattle. He was living uh, in New York and was finishing up a master's at Boston College. And then he moved to Seattle. We moved in together, and he was working on a PhD in music, or actually a, a doctorate of music at, at the University of Washington. What I think that he didn't totally see at the time, but he would now readily acknowledge, is that opening a restaurant was a really great way to avoid, you know, his sort of creative angst about music. You know, for as much as he loves to write music, he's like a lot of us writers in that he'll do anything to avoid it. And so he opened a restaurant. So why pizza? Because this actually circles back to one of the earliest stages of your dating relationship. Yeah. So when I met Brandon and he was going to, he was working on his master's at Brooklyn College, he would very often hop on the bus between classes and go over to Defara. And that was sort of his you know, his pizza mecca, it was, you know, 
sometimes he would even, he was living on the Upper West Side, and sometimes he would even take the subway all the way out to Midwood. You know, it's like a two-hour ride just to eat this pizza. And he was really inspired by the fact that Domenico DeMarco, the, the man who owns it, has been the only one to make the pizzas there for more than 40 years now, maybe actually closer to 50 years. And there's really this wonderful old tradition of the, the craftsperson and the artisan that's still alive there. And that I think in this country you really only see you know, in a few pizza people and a few barbecue people. Like, you know, these barbecue pit masters, like they tend to be craftspeople like that who, you know, they don't let anybody else touch their product. And Brandon was really charmed by like the tenacity that comes with that and the 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 way that you come to know this one thing inside and out. So anyway, when he moved to Seattle, he really missed being able to go to Defara. He missed all the pizza here in New York, and uh, he decided to teach himself how to make it. And the Defara pie actually sort of became the template for the Delancey yeah. pie. Brandon just, you know, sort of having no fear, walked up to Mr. DeMarco, and, you know, they had chatted a number of times about, you know, geeking out about pizza. Um, but Brandon asked him if he could have a little bit of his raw dough just to taste it and feel it and see what it was like for him in his own dough developing process. So Mr. DeMarco gave Brandon some of his raw dough. And tasting it and holding it was really helpful to him in figuring out how to create his own product. It's, you know, it's saltier than you would expect. It's it's a wetter dough than you would expect. Yeah, that's one of the things that's been the, the most wonderful surprise to me and Brandon in this whole process is how generous people in the food industry can be with their knowledge. Right. You talked a lot in the memoir, too, about how generous the people in Seattle, the, the restaurateurs in Seattle were when this idea was just getting off the ground. There's a wonderful collaborative spirit among restaurant owners there. And it's hard for me to explain. It was really helpful, actually. I was recently um, re-watching the Cameron Crowe Pearl Jam documentary, Pearl Jam 20. In it, you know, the guys in Pearl Jam were talking about how in, in you know, the 90s, you know, the heyday of grunge music in Seattle, like all these bands were all friends and they all collaborated. And, you know, even though they were obviously competing, in a certain sense, they really, they were friends and they were in it together. And I get that same feeling being a part of the restaurant business in Seattle. I mean, we would have never had the courage to, to open this place if it weren't for our friend Carla Leonardi, who owns a restaurant called Cafe Lago and really sort of believed in Brandon and in his ability to, to make fantastic pizza um, and saw that in him before anybody else. Right. Carla was, in fact, originally going to be a partner on, on Delancey. Yeah. Yeah. They sort of, you know, dreamed up this idea together. The truth is, is that Carla has a really successful restaurant of her own and a family. And, you know, as she got more into thinking about what it would mean to open another restaurant, she very wisely decided that her family and her own business took up already a lot of her time and that she didn't have enough to give to another business. And so when she departs from the project... That must have made it a lot scarier for you. I mean, for him as well, but yeah. also for you. like Because you were always kind of tentative about this from the beginning, but at least there was an actual restaurateur involved, and then suddenly she's not. Oh, yeah. No, I mean, her vote of confidence, the fact that she was going to go into business with Brandon, that gave me a tremendous amount of confidence. And Carla is like, you know a veteran in the industry and I just felt like she she was going to teach Brandon a lot or she you know she could teach Brandon a lot and so losing her scared the daylights out of me and it really scared Brandon but he you know he he still wanted to do this project and I encouraged him to keep doing it in part because 
I just still didn't really believe that he was going to do it. And I wanted him to be happy. And it made me so sad to see him so crushed by having his business partner, you know, step back away from the project. I encouraged him not, not really thinking of the repercussions. And then the repercussions come. So let's, let's talk about that moment when all this encouragement that you've been giving, despite the fact that you're not a hundred percent there, there comes a point where that has to like blow up. Well, you know, so now Brandon was essentially uh, not just opening, you know, in, in the sort of like business managerial sense, but he was not just opening a restaurant. He was physically building this restaurant. You know, we were doing this in 2008 and early 2009 when the economy was terrible. We couldn't get any small business loans. So what he wound up doing was cobbling together money from a number of friends. The only loan he was able to get was a small loan that just covered the pizza oven. So he was doing most of the construction himself with help from some friends. And at a certain point, I just thought, oh my God, like this is happening. Like this is really happening. I just, I couldn't ignore it anymore. And I should also say that that my first book came out when he was really in the thick of construction. And it was when I got home after, you know, that heady experience of being out on tour. And I, I looked around and I went, oh, my God, like, he needs my help. This is this is happening. I can't just ignore this anymore. Even if it scares me, this is happening. And I realized that if this place was going to be a success, if Delancey, our restaurant, was going to be a success, that somebody needed to help him. Somebody needed to get in there and do construction with him, help him run the place, help him do hiring. And and I realized that I was probably the best person for the job, even though I didn't know what I was doing. And you talk about this a little bit as well, that for you to plunge into the restaurant at that point was also kind of a way for you to avoid, in the same way that he was feeling angst about like yeah. his creativity, you're, you've just finished this massive book project and, and the the touring for this massive book project, and you come back as a creative person, you have to start thinking about what you're going to do next. Or you could just plunge yourself into your husband's totally, restaurant 24-7. Totally, totally. Yeah, I absolutely was doing the same thing that, that he was doing. I was avoiding doing my work by doing, you know, this other new thing uh, that was helping to open a restaurant. And it was really wonderful because unlike writing, it was such tangible work. If there's one thing that working in a restaurant is, it is physical. And it kept me occupied enough to get me through that that difficult period when I didn't know what to do next in my own writing career. And then the difficult thing was extricating myself from the restaurant, or at least um, renegotiating my relationship with the restaurant so that I could uh, get back to what I what I think I should be doing, which is writing. Where was the point at, at which you felt like the thing that you wanted to write about next was to continue in the memoir form and deal specifically with the restaurant? It's hard for me to pinpoint that exact moment, but you know, I think as Brandon was building it and as it, as the process began to switch more from my husband is opening a restaurant to we are opening a restaurant I started to realize that there was a story there. I didn't really know what the story was yet, but it was there. And also, as soon as I could begin to get some distance from it, I could see that it was really funny. Like, the things that we did, the mistakes we made, the things that happened to us were not at all funny at the time. But in retrospect, it was a really funny story. And I wanted I wanted to figure out how to tell it both so that I could remember it and also so that I could sort of understand the, the trajectory that our lives were headed in. Writing helps me 
understand my own life and helps me see the the through line in my own life. And so writing Delancey, you know, when I started, I didn't know how the book was going to end. And that was because I had to figure out the story as I went along. It's, I mean, the story is still ongoing. Delancey will be open five years this summer. Once you got into it, was the idea of replicating the memoir and recipes structure of your first book there from the beginning? Not necessarily. With this book, I... You know, I really had a hard time finding the food in this book. When you're opening a restaurant, you're not eating very well, you know? I mean, there was a, a taqueria right near the restaurant that closed at 9 p.m., and we were very often there, like, you know, peeking our heads in the door at 8.52, you know, seeing if they would still give us a plate of rice and beans for $3 because we'd been doing construction up until that very moment, and now we were hungry. You know, we were not eating food memoir kind of food, I gotta say. And for, with my first book, I had very much used recipes as a springboard, um, as, an, as an opening to be able to tell stories. And so with this book, it was a whole different challenge. I really wrote the book before I knew where the recipes would be in it or what the recipes would be. And thank goodness, they kind of revealed themselves to me along the way. When you're doing a second memoir, there's always that kind of pressure of figuring out you know, how to replicate the things that worked in the first one mm -hmm. without simply retreading you know, the, the familiar territory. Mm -hmm. And how was negotiating that for you? I have felt very lucky with both of my books that I had editors who understood my voice and, if anything, just helped me to sound more like myself. You know, if anything, with this book, I, I, I feel like my voice is, is still the same. Like, if anything, I wanted this book to be tighter and I wanted it to be funnier. Yeah, it felt like kind of a natural extension to me. You know, both both books, in a way, are about things that we don't really like to talk about as a society. Like, you know, I mean, my father's death is sort of all over a homemade life, and we don't really love to talk about death. And a big part of, of Delancey is the struggle that my husband and I went through in sort of negotiating who we were as individuals and as newlyweds in this really scary project we took on together. And so it's about a time in my marriage that was really difficult. And I felt really compelled to write about it because I think we should talk about that stuff more. And I felt the same way about losing a parent. So those two things, um, so I felt motivated by the same kind of emotions in both of them. And are there other memoir writers that you look to as models of that kind of like emotional honesty and and frankness i love calvin trillin and i i my god i mean i you know i'm not saying i write anything like calvin trillin that's like the dream man but i think about the way that he wrote about his wife his wife alice who is such a, a prominent character in so much of his writing and he managed to write about her in a way that made her very real so, you know, didn't idealize her, but also showed you, yeah, showed her the, showed you the fullness of her character and showed you how much he adored her. And he wrote about some really difficult things. I mean, he wrote, you know, a book after she died that's really all about, about their relationship and about losing her. And I feel really inspired by his honesty and his willingness to sort of make himself the clown and, and let her be the straight man. It makes for such a wonderful reading experience. And if there's anything that I wanted out of Delancey, I mean, I, I hope that I come across as maybe the clown, the, the villain maybe, the one who's really making the stupid decisions in this book. And Brandon, uh, despite all of my doubts about him in the beginning, is really the one who had his head on straight and who steers the story and who I think comes across as the really lovable character. 
you're careful too in the ways that you write about other people in the story. There's a point at which you talk very frankly about one of the first cooks that you hired, um, Jared. Well, you get to a point in the story where you're like, you, you just tell us, it's like, you know, I really want to make sure I get this right. Yeah, it's not like I'm writing about something that's over, you know? So the whole time that I was writing about this cook who we had such a, a difficult relationship with, you know, I, I felt a real need to write about him because we learned a lot about how to run a restaurant and how not to run a restaurant, and we made a lot of mistakes. I felt like without his story... I couldn't tell you about any of that. He was a big part of the first year of our business and a really hard part of it. He really manipulated us. But at the same time, you know, we still, we have a staff of 16 people and I certainly don't want, want any of them feeling like, oh God, is Molly going to write about me next? <laughs> I had to really think hard about how to write this story fairly, but how to write it honestly and, and in the fullness that it really happened. And so that meant including some some people, even when it scared me. And of course, I changed a lot of details about him. I don't think he's really recognizable from what I wrote. Although he really does look like Axl Rose a little bit. Now, you talked a little bit earlier about getting to the point where you had plunged yourself into this fully, and then getting to a point where you needed to extricate yourself from the restaurant in order to return to the writing. So it sounds like you feel like you've hit the balance at this point. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah, I think that what was so tough in the beginning is that, you know, we had no money to hire anybody to do the things we weren't good at. And so Brandon and I were doing everything. And it was a real turning point for me. You know, the only thing that enabled me to get back to writing was that we got far enough along in, in the experience of opening a restaurant that A, we had enough money to hire a prep cook. And, you know, I mean, I'm the world's slowest food prepper. I mean, a, a professional prep cook in a restaurant is like lightning fast. I was a terrible prep cook. So we got to a certain point in the restaurant where I could pull back and start to do the things that I was good at and that gave me real pleasure. And, and I could start to find a place for myself within the restaurant where I, I could find a home for myself within this business that had felt so other to me, so foreign. And now Brandon really gets to focus on the pizza and I am basically the manager. I, I do... A lot of things that probably seem really boring, but that just, I, I love payroll. I mean, I am a really twisted person. I love payroll. Um, I do a lot of our scheduling. I, um, you know, keep up all our emails and things like that. I, I do the really boring side of things that gives me a lot of satisfaction. You know, like organizing your desk. Like my whole life is spent organizing the desk that is Delancey. feels great. And you've also added on an extension to Delancey as well. Yeah, in August of 2012, we opened a bar next door called Essex. When we first were looking at the space that became Delancey, there were three storefronts up for rent, but one of them was sort of pretty much spoken for by a woman who owned an umbrella shop. So initially, Delancey had these two storefronts, and next to them was this umbrella shop. And this umbrella shop, I mean, you know, being in Seattle, went so gangbusters that she was able to get a space uh, at Pike Place Market in early 2012, and we took over her space and turned it into a bar that could basically serve as a, you know, Delancey often has a wait. We're really lucky. And we wanted to create a place for customers to hang out while they were waiting for a table at Delancey and also a place where Brandon could geek out on making things, both food and drinks and liqueurs and things like that, that, that didn't really fit on the menu at Delancey. So Essex has actually allowed us to really expand the repertoire of what, what the kitchen does. We put in a second wood-burning oven that uh, is now sort of 
entirely devoted to doing wood-fired vegetables and meats and seafood for Essex. And obviously, with Delancey, the memoir out, you have found the time to to write mm-hmm. in all of this. So how is that coming along now? I, you know, I feel really lucky. I feel like I've got a, a good sort of uh, balance. I, I don't know if I'm the kind of writer, you know, now that I... So basically, I spend 50% of my time managing the businesses and maybe 50% of the time writing. And, you know, it's it's pretty great. I have to say, you know, being a writer can be so solitary, but I get to, you know, be in Delancey two days a week and almost every evening and get this wonderful community that really feeds my writing and means that I'm never lonely when I'm, you know, at my desk with my blinders on trying to churn out some writing. Food is continuing to be a, a primary focus of, of that writing? It is, I think. You know, it was it was actually really nice for, for this book, for Delancey, for me to leave food on the, on the back burner for most of the first draft. It was really refreshing to try to write in a different way. So, I don't know. You know, I think that food, um, you know, food is sort of a marker of my days. And, uh, you know, the the fact that we have to eat three times a day means that there's pretty much always something to write about it. It's the, the gift that keeps giving. But, um, yeah, I kind of want to explore other things. We'll see. Cool. Well, we will see how those turn out. In the meantime, there is Delancey. It's the second memoir from Molly Weisenberg. It's out now from Simon & Schuster. You've been listening to Life Stories, and if you're subscribed to this podcast through iTunes, thank you for that. If you're not subscribed yet, it's very easy to do. And when you do subscribe, or if you are currently, I hope you might take a moment to rate and review the podcast there. It makes it a little bit easier for other people to find it down the line. I'm Ron Hogan. I thank you for listening, and I hope you'll join us again for another episode soon. Take care.